Section 10 of Lord Arthur Seville's Crime and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Lord Arthur Seville's Crime and Other Stories by Oscar Wilde. Section 10. The Portrait of Mr. W. H. Chapter 2. It was past twelve o'clock when I awoke, and the sun was streaming in through the curtains of my room in long slanting beams of dusty gold. I told my servant that I would be at home to no one, and after I had had a cup of chocolate and a petit pain, I took down from the bookshelf a copy of Shakespeare's sonnets and began to go carefully through them. Every poem seemed to me to corroborate Cyril Graham's theory. I felt as if I had my hand upon Shakespeare's heart and was counting each separate throb and pulse of passion. I thought of the wonderful boy actor and saw his face in every line. Two sonnets, I remember, struck me particularly. They were the 53rd and the 67th. In the first of these, Shakespeare, complimenting Willie Hughes on the versatility of his acting, on his wide range of parts, a range extending from Rosalind to Juliet and from Beatrice to Ophelia, says to him, what is your substance whereof are you made that millions of strange shadows on you tend since every one hath every one one shade and you but one can every shadow lend lines that would be unintelligible if they were not addressed to an actor for the word shadow had in shakespeare's day a technical meaning connected with the stage the best in this kind are but shadows says theseus of the actors in the midsummer night's dream and there are many similar allusions in the literature of the day these sonnets evidently belong to the series in which shakespeare discusses the nature of the actor's art and of the strange and rare temperament that is essential to the perfect stage player how is it says shakespeare to willie hughes that you have so many personalities and then he goes on to point out that his beauty is such that it seems to realize every form and phase of fancy to embody each dream of the creative imagination an idea that is still further expanded in the sonnet that immediately follows where beginning with the fine thought oh how much more doth beauty beauteous seem by that sweet ornament which truth doth give shakespeare invites us to notice how the truth of acting the truth of visible presentation on the stage adds to the wonder of poetry giving life to its loveliness and actual reality to its ideal form and yet in the sixty-seventh sonnet shakespeare calls upon willie hughes to abandon the stage with its artificiality its false mimic life of painted face and unreal costume its immoral influences and suggestions its remoteness from the true world of noble action and sincere utterance ah wherefore with infection should he live and with his presence grace impiety that sin by him advantage should achieve and lace itself with his society why should false painting imitate his cheek and steel dead seeming of his living hue why should poor beauty indirectly seek roses of shadow since his rose is true it may seem strange that so great a dramatist as shakespeare who realized his own perfection as an artist and his humanity as a man on the ideal plane of stage writing and stage playing should have written in these terms about the theatre 
but we must remember that in sonnets 110 and 111 shakespeare shows us that he too was wearied of the world of puppets and full of shame at having made himself a motley to the view the 111th sonnet is especially bitter oh for my sake do you with fortune chide the guilty goddess of my harmful deeds that did not better for my life provide than public means which public manners breeds thence comes it that my name receives a brand and almost thence my nature is subdued to what it works in like the dyer's hand pity me then and wish i were renewed and there are many signs elsewhere of the same feelings signs familiar to all real students of shakespeare one point puzzled me immensely as i read the sonnets and it was days before i struck on the true interpretation which indeed cyril graham himself seems to have missed i could not understand how it was that shakespeare set so high a value on his young friend marrying he himself had married young and the result had been unhappiness and it was not likely that he would have asked willie hughes to commit the same error the boy player of rosalind had nothing to gain from marriage or from the passions of real life the early sonnets with their strange entreaties to have children seemed to me a jarring note the explanation of the mystery came on me quite suddenly and i found it in the curious dedication it will be remembered that the dedication runs as follows to the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets mr w h all happiness and that eternity promised by our ever-living poet wisheth the well-wishing adventurer in setting forth t t some scholars have supposed that the word begetter in this dedication means simply the procurer of the sonnets for thomas thorpe the publisher but this view is now generally abandoned and the highest authorities are quite agreed that it is to be taken in the sense of inspirer the metaphor being drawn from the analogy of physical life now i saw that the same metaphor was used by shakespeare himself all through the poems and this set me on the right track finally i made my great discovery the marriage that shakespeare proposes for willie hughes is the marriage with his muse an expression which is definitely put forward in the eighty-second sonnet where in the bitterness of his heart at the defection of the boy actor for whom he had written his greatest parts and whose beauty had indeed suggested them he opens his complaint by saying i grant thou wert not married to my muse the children he begs him to beget are no children of flesh and blood but more immortal children of undying fame the whole cycle of the early sonnets is simply shakespeare's invitation to willie hughes to go upon the stage and become a player how barren and profitless a thing he says is this beauty of yours if it be not used when forty winters shall besiege thy brow and dig deep trenches in thy beauty's field thy youth's proud livery so gazed on now will be a tattered weed of small worth held then being asked where all thy beauty lies where all the treasure of thy lusty days to say within thine own deep sunken eyes were an all-eating shame and thriftless praise you must create something in art my verse is thine and born of thee only listen to me and i will bring forth eternal numbers to outlive long date and you shall people with forms of your own image the imaginary world of the stage 
these children that you beget he continues will not wither away as mortal children do but you shall live in them and in my plays do but make thee another self for love of me that beauty still may live in thine or thee i collected all the passages that seemed to me to corroborate this view and they produced a strong impression on me and showed me how complete cyril graham's theory really was i also saw that it was quite easy to separate those lines in which he speaks of the sonnets themselves from those in which he speaks of his great dramatic work this was a point that had been entirely overlooked by all critics up to cyril graham's day and yet it was one of the most important points in the whole series of poems to the sonnets shakespeare was more or less indifferent he did not wish to rest his fame on them they were to him his slight muse as he calls them and intended as mears tells us for private circulation only among a few a very few friends upon the other hand he was extremely conscious of the high artistic value of his plays and shows a noble self-reliance upon his dramatic genius when he says to willie hughes but thy eternal summer shall not fade nor lose possession of that fair thou owest nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest so long as men can breathe or eyes can see so long lives this and this gives life to thee the expression eternal lines clearly alludes to one of his plays that he was sending him at the time just as the concluding couplet points to his confidence in the probability of his plays being always acted in his address to the dramatic muse sonnets one hundred and one hundred one we find the same feeling where art thou muse that thou forgets so long to speak of that which gives thee all thy might spendest thou thy fury on some worthless song darkening thy power to lend base subjects light he cries and then he proceeds to reproach the mistress of tragedy and comedy for her neglect of truth and beauty died and says because he needs no praise wilt thou be dumb excuse not silence so for it lies in these to make him much outlive a gilded tomb and to be praised of ages yet to be then do thy office muse i teach thee how to make him seem long hence as he shows now it is however perhaps in the fifty-fifth sonnet that shakespeare gives to this idea its fullest expression to imagine that the powerful rhyme of the second line refers to the sonnet itself is to mistake shakespeare's meaning entirely it seemed to me that it was extremely likely from the general character of the sonnet that a particular play was meant and that the play was none other but romeo and juliet not marble nor the gilded monuments of princes shall outlive this powerful rhyme but you shall shine more bright in these contents than unswept stone besmeared with sluttish time when wasteful wars shall statues overturn and broils root out the work of masonry nor mars his sword nor war's quick fire shall burn the living record of your memory against death and all oblivious enmity shall you pace forth your praise shall still find room even in the eyes of all posterity that wear this world out to the ending doom so till the judgment that yourself arise you live in this and dwell in lovers eyes 
it was also extremely suggestive to note how here as elsewhere shakespeare promised willie hughes immortality in a form that appealed to men's eyes that is to say in a spectacular form in a play that is to be looked at for two weeks i worked hard at the sonnets hardly ever going out and refusing all invitations every day i seemed to be discovering something new and willie hughes became to me a kind of spiritual presence an ever dominant personality i could almost fancy that i saw him standing in the shadow of my room so well had shakespeare drawn him with his golden hair his tender flower-like grace his dreamy deep-sunken eyes his delicate mobile limbs and his white lily hands his very name fascinated me willie hughes willie hughes how musically it sounded yes who else but he could have been the master mistress of shakespeare's passion the lord of his love to whom he was bound in vassalage the delicate minion of pleasure the rose of the whole world the herald of the spring decked in the proud livery of youth the lovely boy whom it was sweet music to hear and whose beauty was the very raiment of shakespeare's heart as it was the keystone of his dramatic power how bitter now seemed the whole tragedy of his desertion and his shame shame that he made sweet and lovely by the mere magic of his personality but that was none the less shame yet as shakespeare forgave him should not we forgive him also i did not care to pry into the mystery of his sin his abandonment of shakespeare's theatre was a different matter and i investigated it at great length finally i came to the conclusion that cyril graham had been wrong in regarding the rival dramatist of the eightieth sonnet as chapman it was obviously marlowe who was alluded to at the time the sonnets were written such an expression as the proud full sail of his great verse could not have been used of chapman's work however applicable it might have been to the style of his later jacobean plays no marlowe was clearly the rival dramatist of whom shakespeare spoke in such laudatory terms and that affable familiar ghost which nightly gulls him with intelligence was the mephistopheles of his dr faustus no doubt marlowe was fascinated by the beauty and grace of the boy actor and lured him away from the blackfriars theatre that he might play the gaveston of his edward the second that shakespeare had the legal right to retain willie hughes in his own company is evident from sonnet eighty seven where he says farewell thou art too dear for my possessing and like enough thou knowest thy estimate the charter of thy worth gives thee releasing my bonds in thee are all determinate for how do i hold thee but by thy granting and for that riches where is my deserving the cause of this fair gift in me is wanting and so my patent back again is swerving thyself thou gayest thy own worth then not knowing or me to whom thou gavest it else mistaking so thy great gift upon misprision growing comes home again on better judgment making thus have i had thee as a dream doth flatter in sleep a king but waking no such matter but him whom he could not hold by love he would not hold by force willie hughes became a member of lord pembroke's company 
and perhaps in the open yard of the Red Bull Tavern, played the part of King Edward's delicate minion. On Marlowe's death, he seems to have returned to Shakespeare, who, whatever his fellow partners may have thought of the matter, was not slow to forgive the willfulness and treachery of the young actor. How well, too, had Shakespeare drawn the temperament of the stage player. Willie Hughes was one of those that do not do the thing they most do show, who, moving others, are themselves as stone. He could act love, but could not feel it, could mimic passion without realizing it. In many looks, the false heart's history is writ in moods and frowns, and wrinkles strange. But with Willie Hughes it was not so. Heaven, says Shakespeare, in a sonnet of mad idolatry, Heaven in thy creation did decree that in thy face sweet love should ever dwell. Whate'er thy thoughts or thy heart's workings be, thy looks should nothing thence but sweetness tell. In his inconstant mind and his false heart, it was easy to recognize the insincerity and treachery that somehow seem inseparable from the artistic nature, as in his love of praise that desire for immediate recognition that characterizes all actors. And yet more fortunate in this than other actors, Willie Hughes was to know something of immortality. Inseparably connected with Shakespeare's plays, he was to live in them. Your name from hence immortal life shall have though i once gone to all the world must die the earth can yield me but a common grave when you entombed in men's eyes shall lie your monument shall be my gentle verse which eyes not yet created shall o'er-read and tongues to be your being shall rehearse when all the breathers of this world are dead there were endless allusions also to willie hughes's power over his audience the gazers, as Shakespeare calls them. But perhaps the most perfect description of his wonderful mastery over dramatic art was in A Lover's Complaint, where Shakespeare says of him, In him a plenitude of subtle matter, applied to caudles all strange forms receives, of burning blushes, or of weeping water, or swooning paleness. And he takes and leaves in either's aptness as it best deceives, to blush at speech's rank, to weep at woes, or to turn white and swoon at tragic shows. So on the tip of his subduing tongue, all kinds of arguments and questions deep, all replication prompt and reason strong, for his advantage still did wake and sleep, to make the weeper laugh, the laugher weep. He had the dialect and the different skill, catching all passions in his craft of will. Once I thought that I had really found Willie Hughes in Elizabethan literature. In a wonderfully graphic account of the last days of the great Earl of Essex, his chaplain, Thomas Nell, tells us that the night before the Earl died, he called William Hughes, which was his musician, to play upon the virginals and to sing. "'Play,' said he, "'my song, Will Hughes.' and I will sing it to myself. So he did it most joyfully, not as the howling swan, which, still looking down, waileth her end, but as a sweet lark, lifting up his hands and casting up his eyes to his God. With this mounted the crystal skies, and reached with his unwearied tongue the top of highest heavens. 
surely the boy who played on the virginals to the dying father of sidney's stella was none other but the will hughes to whom shakespeare dedicated the sonnets and whom he tells us was himself sweet music to hear yet lord essex died in fifteen seventy six when shakespeare himself was but twelve years of age it was impossible that his musician could have been the mr w h of the sonnets perhaps shakespeare's young friend was the son of the player upon the virginals it was at least something to have discovered that will hughes was an elizabethan name indeed the name hughes seemed to have been closely connected with music and the stage the first english actress was the lovely margaret hughes whom prince rupert so madly loved what more probable than that between her and lord essex musician had come the boy actor of shakespeare's plays but the proofs the links where were they alas i could not find them it seemed to me that i was always on the brink of absolute verification but that i could never really attain it from willie hughes's life i soon passed to thoughts of his death i used to wonder what had been his end perhaps he had been one of those english actors who in sixteen o four went across sea to germany and played before the great duke henry julius of brunswick himself a dramatist of no mean order and at the court of that strange elector of brandenburg who was so enamoured of beauty that he was said to have bought for his weight in amber the young son of a travelling greek merchant and to have given pageants in honour of his slave all through that dreadful famine year of sixteen o six to sixteen o seven when the people died of hunger in the very streets of the town and for the space of seven months there was no rain we know at any rate that romeo and juliet was brought out at dresden in sixteen thirteen along with hamlet and king lear and it was surely to none other than willie hughes that in sixteen fifteen the death mask of shakespeare was brought by the hand of one of the suite of the english ambassador pale token of the passing away of the great poet who had so dearly loved him indeed there would have been something peculiarly fitting in the idea that the boy actor whose beauty had been so vital an element in the realism and romance of shakespeare's art should have been the first to have brought to germany the seed of the new culture and was in his way the precursor of that aufklarung or illumination of the eighteenth century that splendid movement which though begun by lessing and herder and brought to its full and perfect issue by goethe was in no small part helped on by another actor friedrich schroeder who awoke the popular consciousness and by means of the feigned passions and mimetic methods of the stage showed the intimate the vital connection between life and literature if this was so and there was certainly no evidence against it it was not improbable that willie hughes was one of those english comedians mime quidum ex britannia as the old chronicle calls them who were slain at nuremberg in a sudden uprising of the people and were secretly buried in a little vineyard outside the city by some young men who had found pleasure in their performances and of whom some had sought to be instructed in the mysteries of the new art certainly no more fitting place could there be for him to whom shakespeare said thou art all my art than this little vineyard outside the city walls for was it not from the sorrows of dionysos that tragedy sprang was not the light laughter of comedy with its careless merriment and quick replies first heard on the lips of the sicilian vine-dressers 
nay did not the purple and red stain of the wine froth on face and limbs give the first suggestion of the charm and fascination of disguise the desire for self-concealment the sense of the value of objectivity thus showing itself in the rude beginnings of the art at any rate wherever he lay whether in the little vineyard at the gate of the gothic town or in some dim london churchyard amidst the roar and bustle of our great city no gorgeous monument marked his resting-place his true tomb as shakespeare saw was the poet's verse his true monument the permanence of the drama so had it been with others whose beauty had given a new creative impulse to their age the ivory body of the bithynian slave rots in the green ooze of the nile and on the yellow hills of the ceramicus is strewn the dust of the young athenian but antinous lives in sculpture and carmides in philosophy end of section ten recording by james k white chula vista